Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new Redefining Security podcast. Have you ever thought that we are selling cybersecurity insincerely, buying it indiscriminately, and deploying it ineffectively? Perhaps we are. So let's look at how we can organize a successful InfoSec program that integrates people, process, technology, and culture to drive growth and protect business value. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. iTrust is a leading data protection standards development and certification organization that strives to safeguard sensitive information and manage information risk for global organizations across all industries and throughout the third-party supply chain. Learn more at HighTrustAlliance.net. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. Here we are. We are live on uh, the Redefining Cybersecurity here on ITS Magazine. Thanks everybody for joining us. Uh, today is all about data security. Data. Uh, I have two guests joining me. Uh, our third guest, unfortunately, we're unable to get to We hope uh, everything is well with her. We do have Andy Rapport and Chris Scalas on. Uh, thanks, guys, for uh, joining. Pleasure. And uh, a little bit of background noise or echo there. And um, hear Mike, even when you're not talking, that'd be great. I'm going to take a moment. You can just say a few words about uh, your current role and some of the things you've been up to and your view of data protection and why it's important. And uh, Andy, I'm going to pass the ball to you first. Oh, sure. So my name is Andy Rappaport, and I'm an architect. So kind of view data security from the builder side, from the architect side. Um, I've been the data guy at security companies. I've been the security guy at data companies. Um, I've been lucky enough that my, my roles have covered both hemispheres of data so I've had jobs where I've been involved in harvesting and using data. I've had jobs where I've been involved in uh, protecting the data and making sure that uh, risk is under control, both little and uh, big companies. Um, I worked at a large health data SaaS um, where my role was to um, help make it more data driven where the security practices were everything from superb to surprisingly terrible. Um, I worked at a a pen test company where my job was to, uh, I built a security risk product where we'd harvest a ton of data and make risk calculations of that based on attack graphs. Um, on the, the use side, I worked at a, I grew and ran a data science group at a small video game company and everything was data driven. Uh, from the virtual game economy to how the PhDs monetize the uh, the virtual goods selling, you know, how you, how you actually put up the different loot boxes and things like that. Um, what I learned from those things is how the data people, whether it was me or someone else, um, how they look at training data, how they want to consume and how it's part of their, their job. So um, I think that the people want to do the right thing. So on the data security side is 
how do we help them do the right thing? How do we keep data pervasive and the lifeblood of a company while being aware of risk and what's the, where are the pressure points that uh, we can apply the right leverage to make things better to reduce risk. Um, current job is, I'm a data security architect at a consumer IoT company. A company is truly data-driven, just ingest you know, massive amounts of IoT data that flows through all of the product, all of the uh, AI training, product ecosystem, things like that. So again, both hemispheres, collecting data and securing data. No, but so, so many things to tap into there, Andy. Uh, glad to have you on. And Chris, uh, a bit about uh, what you're up to and uh, similar similar view. Absolutely. Sean, thank you for having me. Andy, looking forward to chatting a little bit with you and getting to know you a little more. I'm Chris Doskalos. Currently, I'm data protection lead for the University of Southern California. Um, been in the information security space for about 10 years now. Um, transitioned from consulting and advisory now to a position, you know, where I really got the opportunity to put things into practice and, and protect data in, in an environment that really means a lot to me. Love it. Well, I'm, I'm excited for this conversation. Let me let me start it off, and I, I want to get your perspectives on the current state of data security within an organization. And, and, and Andy, you said there are data people, and I want to hone in on that first. Um, do we have, generally speaking, a good view of are there data people or are there people within other functions that are responsible for looking at data and how we protect it? Or what's the current state of, of things oh, in that, man, that I, perspective? I think the, the change in the past even two years, three years, like really fast, is that nearly everybody is a data person, that everybody wants to be more data-driven. So it used to be you would have um, DBAs and data analysts that were hardcore data people that would synthesize the data and produce conclusions to people. Uh, that's gone. You know, everybody in the, in the product ecosystem, everybody that wants to run an efficient business wants the data, you know, air quotes around that. Um, and so the data is, is everything from know, analytics you get out of Google Analytics to uh, customer you know, NPS scores to how it impacts uh, supply chain, any of those things. So everybody's a data person. Um, there's more and more professional data people. So there's more and more people with data science degrees or that are full-time analysts that um, have it as part of their job to go deep, meaning they want access to more and more uh, raw data from within your company but they also want to be able to join that data from more and more external data, um, industry data, analytics, marketing, any of those kind of things. Um, so that is awesome. Companies that do that well have a competitive advantage, but that creates uh, um, more work on data security. How do you protect it across that kind of massive ecosystem as it flows from inside your stuff to you know, dashboards, partners, third party, et cetera. Yeah, Chris, your, your perspective here, because what Andy just described to me, and I like to visualize things, is every, not everybody was an engineer who could spin up cloud, right? Now that's possible, right? Everybody can have new product in the cloud pretty much with a flip a switch or enter a credit card number. Um, so that to me says anybody can 
create data, consume data, manage data, use data to make decisions and do whatever. Um, what, what's your view of, of the state of data protection with, with that view in mind? Yeah, I, I think pretty similar, actually. My take that I was thinking about, you know, before coming on this is um, where an organization sits on the spectrum of their data proliferation really needs to drive their strategy around data protection. Um, when I think of this spectrum of data proliferation on one side, on the far left, you've got just data is everywhere, no real governance dictating where it can and should not be based on, on where how it's classified. And on the other side of the far right spectrum, you know, you've got maybe one central place, you know, where, where all of those, those high value asset type information things are, and, and you can really focus on protecting them. Um, for better, for worse, actually, one of the things that I think is so interesting about my job now is that we're close to that far left spectrum. We're on that, you know, it's USC is a 140 year old organization. Um, hasn't until recently started to to build out some of those those governance and guardrail type aspects for for data um and across the spectrum of what data it has there's everything and it, it's really everywhere so we we've got an interesting challenge trying to, to figure out where it is and making sure that it's it's protected and andy i want to come to you and then then chris can can follow up but uh, as we before we started recording, I mentioned that privacy tends to get a lot of the attention when it comes to data security. Um, certainly, in the in the uh, in the public realm and in news articles and things like that, I want to recognize that that's important. And certainly, Andy, you've worked in the healthcare space. So nowhere is it more important, in my opinion, than in the healthcare space to protect the the, the information there from a privacy perspective. But let's look at just pure business operations and competitive advantage and intellectual property and the impact data compromise, not just being able to read something, but manipulating something or making it uh, unavailable. So the CIA triad of, of cybersecurity, if you will, beyond just privacy, how important is that? And where do you see things uh, oh, sure. there? Massive. In fact, I think that um, as companies do risk analysis, um, the math, in my opinion, is that privacy is where security people get their, their leverage from, but the risk of leaking, say, emails is a lot less than leaking other types of data. You know, so, for example, um, in a data classification system, in my opinion, at the highest level should be the secrets that uh, you use to control your system, whether it's admin credentials, whether it's uh, private keys, signing keys, those kind of things. If you look at the the risk of if those things are compromised, you know, what's the risk if, say, if you're an admin gets fished and someone can drop all your databases, yikes, you know, or encrypt your databases and a ransomware attack, um, or let's say someone steals your um, signing keys to your mobile app, something like that, um, or your open source projects or whatever it is, and suddenly they put out a bootleg of your of your code that your customers think is your company. Instead, it's scraping data. Um, I think if you model out those risks, um, whether it's uh, reputational, whether it's availability, if someone deletes all your data um, or encrypts all your data and you're offline for however long, one, two, three, four, five days, whatever it takes, um, what is the reputational risk? What is the risk to your cash flow? 
Um, so again, I think privacy and compliance is the, the hammer or the fulcrum for whatever leverage you want. It's easiest for security people to use privacy and um, HIPAA or SOX or whatever as a way to um, for leverage to, to impact change. Um, but I think as when you look at risk to the business and security people, be risk, you know, uh, be risk aware, number one. Um, when you focus your controls on where you pay attention, uh, focus your time into things that truly have most risk to the business. You know, it might not be email addresses, you know, it'd be something more, uh, more sensitive. Great. Um, and just to build a little bit on, on Andy, what you were talking about, um, agreed, trying to leverage that privacy and compliance is the hammer. Um, but from my position, I'm a data protection lead on the governance risk and compliance team. Um, I think that's one kind of way to come at what data protection is, focusing on things like GDPR and CCPA. And then another side coming at it more technically with our tools, what, whatever they may be, DLP or specific encryption strategies. Um, I think in the kind of setting up a, a program from the beginning um, on an institution that has existed for, for much longer, our focus has really been trying to, to come at it from where do the guardrails need to be? Um, what compliance can we put in place to help put these guardrails up where they need to be? Um, what assets do we need to protect? And then who's responsible for, for protecting them? Um, and of all of those things at the very beginning of our, our strategy roadmap, before we can even get to, to some of the technical controls of, of encryption and DLP and, and other things like that. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I was wondering how often, and it may be the case, how often uh, organizations go straight to the tools, DLP, right? Um, and I'm wondering, is is there value in that? I, I, I recognize, and I, I certainly don't want to preach, don't don't look at risk management because I'm all I'm about risk management. But is there value in leveraging tools to just even get a sense of what's what? Um, what what is in my environment? What do I have to care about? How can I start a conversation? Because I don't know to to start a risk management program and to start a data protection strategy uh, session probably requires executive buy-in, right? So how do you, I guess my question is, how do you get that executive buy-in? Does it start with the tools that then leads back to the risk management and strategy or does it start with strategy and, and you get somewhere from there? Maybe Chris, if you can take that from your perspective. Sure. Um, so I think super, super important direction to, to cover in this, in this episode. Um, executive buy-in mandatory. I think we've got to have that. Um, otherwise it's just a, steeper battle to climb uphill. Um, we can use some of those tools that if they are in place already to help drive that that buy-in, you know, here's what our tools are finding, here's all of this data that, that's seen and, you know, out there pervasive and, and really unprotected. Um, but ideally we've already got that executive buy-in going in and then we can use those tools in a kind of information gathering discovery perspective um, to help drive our strategy of, of you know, who owns this data? Who owns that data? What's the, that owner's responsibility for this data? Um, and build from there. And Andy, your, your view on this, um, 
Oh, I, I agree completely that I think you, you need to have top-down support or you go nowhere or you're just technical people yelling at the number of open vulnerabilities, you know, yelling into the wind. Um, so I agree that you need um, executive support to uh, help champion it and to tell you that it's important and it's worthwhile. Um, I think starting with compliance and well-defined regulations is uh, a great way to start because you'll get buy-in that, yeah, we need to do it um, in whatever, whether it's financial or, or privacy regulations. Um, start there to uh, kind of land and expand. Um, I think that Chris is absolutely right that part of your um, strategy and your maturation process is to continually know what your domain is. What are, uh, what's the ebb and flow of your data? So it's one thing to think of what are your enterprise apps or what are your enterprise databases, that's a start. Um, but also from a risk perspective, think about how things flow through your data, whether it's a partner ecosystem, um, whether it's uh, what can and cannot be stored on people's laptops, uh, what can and cannot leave your building, what can and cannot be stored in your cloud or off your cloud. Um, so I, the ongoing challenge is both um, can be helped with asset management, but a lot of it is just personal as well. Let's understand the ebb and flow of your data so that when you set policies about where data can be stored, you know, what databases, things like that, you can also tell people, uh, what can you put in email? What can you put in Slack? What data um, can show up in product logs or not? Um, if an analyst has access to query a database, um, can they save the results to their laptop or not? Can they take a screenshot or not? So um, I agree with Chris that understanding the data domain is massive, but it's more than just what databases you have. I love where you're taking this, Andy, because those examples are like spot on from my perspective. They're very actionable, right? It's a question. Is this something we should allow or not? Or in what cases should it be allowed and, and to what extent? And I'm wondering how, to me, that's a set of guidelines or perhaps policies that might get created, hopefully with some context developed in this story, right? So here's a situation. We have this data. Here's where it can be used appropriately. Who, who in the organization should be responsible and or at least part of creating those policies? Is that typically led by security operations or is it, is it a different uh, department in the organization? Is it risk? Is it data privacy, data, the DPO? Or if they don't have a DPO, who is it? <laughs> I think for, from my experience, it works best if the authority is either the business owner or the compliance owner. So literally the, the authority that I think the data security professional, one that might be a little bit closer to the data can collaborate, maybe even tee up the question, um, but it has to be the lawyer, the privacy owner, the business owner that ultimately sanctions and authorizes a policy because that's where you are your mandate comes from, um, then once uh, they have sanctioned it, um, then it becomes much easier to enforce 
because um, you don't need to convince people. You just need to say, here's the, here's the law, and here's how I can help you comply with this policy or uh, this rule in an efficient way. So you can be on the, the enablement side rather than the, like, uh, uh, you want people to think of you as an enabler and a, and a friend, someone that can, in a low drama way, help them meet their deadlines rather than someone who's going to show up with a black cloud over their head and say you're doing everything wrong and so you're going to miss your deliverables if you even accept my meeting. So. And I just want to jump in there, um, Sean, to your point, Andy, what you're talking about. Um, you know, I think it's, for example, give a story about our, my experience in being part of this, the USC security organization that came up with 16 policies, um, put in best practices, recommendations tied to specific regulations and things and put those out there. Um, but what the security office was told was that, you know, agreed these are very important, but have you gone on a roadshow and gotten buy-in from all of the, the schools and units and do they accept it? Do they, you know, believe this is, this is doable with where they at? where they're at currently, are you, you know, meeting them halfway or are you just putting these policies out there, you know, and, and it's going to be however long it might be for, for all of our departments to get to that point. Um, which I think I want to tie back into Andy, when you were talking about, you know, this type of data can be stored on laptops and this type cannot, it, it, in my experience at, at this organization that's, you know, existed for a long time, we can put those those guidelines out there, but then what's already happening and what do we do with that stuff that's already there where, you know, we, we think it shouldn't be according to these policies that we've published now. Um, so I, I think it's almost, we've got to have like two parallel roads going at the same time, putting out what should happen and then somehow having to address what's already there and, and schools and units having developed big processes and procedures around, you know, just what's worked for them in the past in the absence of these defined security guidelines um, and making sure that we've got a plan to either secure what they're already doing or kind of off ramp them in a way that's manageable uh, for them to meet us where, where our policies are. So Chris, it sounds like, um, and I can understand that position because I mean, you have a policy, you put some controls. If you automate those controls, you could screw the whole organization over. Um, yeah. So how, how do you move through that process of here are the scenarios and, and the, the guidelines we want to put in place for how data should be used, stored, um, access, things like that, to a point where you can actually say, all right, we, we now want to enforce, or put in place some controls so we can monitor how well we're meeting those and then perhaps even begin to enforce some of those policies to ensure that that they're being uh, met. Um, I don't know who, who wants to take it. Maybe Andy, do, how do you move from, um, from that? I think that Chris described it perfect. Yeah, there's where you want to go and where uh, you are at and you might be, to Chris's point, might be 10, 100 different groups, all of different levels of uh, maturity. Um, the new ones might be great. The older ones might be a disaster, but that's how they've done it forever. And good luck trying to fix it all. Um, a, the best process I've ever been involved in um, when I worked at a health data SAS, um, the risk committee was COO, had a compliance, the EVP that owned 
all of engineering um, and me, and we set up just a CMM-based uh, maturity scores for, I don't know, there are eight or so different security domains, um, whether it was something um, technical like data security in their database or something process-oriented about how they manage users, you know, IAM. Um, and uh, we had defined a, for each level, one to five, what, uh, what the different levels of maturity are. Um, and every quarter, every month, I would meet with each group and the group and I would score where they are in that maturity score. Um, they were um, rewarded for improvement rather than getting hammered for where they stood. So their, their obligation was to make continual improvements according to this uh, you know, CMM-based maturity score. Um, and that was all good as long as they're moving in the right direction. The reason why I liked it is that it was uh, generally happier than, you know, some security wonk showing up and telling them that they're doing everything wrong and they need to do things differently. Like they're not going to put up with that. And in fact, the security person probably loses. Instead, this was uh, very positive and collaborative that I could help them say, well, here are some things you could do to improve. And again, whether it's data leak or IAM or um, security or how they use metrics. Um, and they, like to negotiate with me for ways they think they could improve their security maturity score the most with the kind of least effort. You know, that was their gaming of the system. My game was to get their, get their numbers up and do data, data security. Um, but I thought that process of looking at it as a maturity vector for different product groups or business units or whatever you want uh, was a very positive way to do it. Um, we resulted in uh, reduced risk or better security maturity. Um, one thing I liked about it is that it was measurable. We could give a risk posture for each group um, that we had overall risk process posture or really maturity. So we could look as, a, as an overall organization, are we moving in the right direction? We could score which areas were the best or the worst. So we could look at deltas, which one's improving, not improving. Um, and there's a magic thing once you create a leaderboard. No group wants to be at the bottom of the leaderboard. So there would be a kind of internal competition to improve so that they weren't the worst. So we're using the best and worst of human nature to kind of uh, get them to improve the maturity score a little bit. And I, I suspect it promotes uh, conversation. Right. If you're if you're talking about it, you're you're kind of collectively at some point coming together with some common understanding and and what what the real objective is and how everybody's working together to make that happen. And I'm wondering, Chris, when I when I look at projects or programs like this, I'm a program manager by by uh, thought. Everything looks like a project to me. Um, the more you can kind of break it down and perhaps find a quick win find some low hanging fruit where you can kind of get people to say, that's what we're trying to kind of like what Andy was saying. That's what we're trying to accomplish here. And I can do something similar by applying what I do in my role this way. I'm wondering how, how do you kind of break down the big, we have to secure our data <laughs> program into something that's manageable for different parts of the organization? Got it. Yeah. Um, so to answer that question and then, 
I totally agree with what Andy was talking about coming in to any unit um, with a partnership, you know, this is going to be a benefit and here's why rather than here's the hammer. And if you don't do this, this is what happens. I totally agree with that. And I think we've found success with that type of partnership as well. Um, And trying to, Sean, one thing to to your point of like, what low hanging fruit can we target now to to show that this is working? Um, I think those are important. Those are valuable. Those are help those really help motivate uh, people to to get behind a, an a overall objective but it it's really important to try and pick the low-hanging fruit that keep you on a path to a longer destination um sometimes i'll see you know where we see all these low-hanging fruit and they're scattered across a a broad array of topics and if we try and just do all these quick low-hanging fruit we can do them but they're not really connecting dots to a, a broader, bigger uh, um, goal. And I think it, when trying to pick what those low-hanging fruit are, just try and pick the ones that, that get you along the path to, to something broader that you're trying to accomplish. And I want to go to kind of this point. I like what you said, Andy, about measurement. I'm going to stick with you for a moment, Chris, here. Um, so yes, you can you can do things, right? You can deploy controls and monitor those controls. And yes, you might have stand-up meetings, but if you if you can't communicate amongst yourselves and to executive staff that this is what we're trying to accomplish, here's the needle that we're moving, um, you may run off the rails or not accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. So how do you how do you work with individuals, um, with the team? I don't know if you have um, specific leaders or champions or I don't know how, how you do it, but how, how do you rally the conversation to a point where you can actually say and demonstrate we are moving the needle here towards something that, that really matters for us? So one, one example that comes to mind um, a recent phishing campaign. Uh, one aspect of uh, data protection, getting us on the kind of softer side for governance, risk, and compliance, the training and awareness. But for that, we had one unit that went ahead. They got the buy-in from their leadership to to pr- allow phishing, regular phishing tests to go to all of their users. Whereas at a broader institution, that was really kind of looked down upon. We, we shouldn't be um, you know, slowing people down with these training type things that pop up um, kind of as an overall, I guess, uh, appetite for, for what we could accomplish with that training and awareness. But we had the one unit who was okay with going forward with that. And after they had gone through that for about a year and they had actionable results that showed, you know, after completing monthly phishing tests for all of our users, like here's where we were in a, in a click rate and, you know, submission um, perspective at the beginning of the year, and here's where we were 12 months later with just performing these types of phishing, and and a you know for users that did click receiving a pop up, um, and just having that one example to show that it it did work and there was benefit. Now we're we're able and capable, to, and we've gotten the approval to do that across the board. That's fantastic. Andy. Yeah, Andy. Any any examples you can share? Uh, well, because one thing for metrics that 
that I would, I would look at. So story that I like when I worked at a big uh, security risk management company, a pen test company, one of our customers, when I was going through the normal spiel of risk, that she politely interrupted me and said, I don't need any more metrics to show that we're busy. I need metrics to show that we are effective. And I thought that kind of like crystallized um, how risk management programs should be built. I think a lot. I think a lot of security metrics are operational metrics, number of vulnerabilities. Um, that doesn't really tell you how well you're doing at reducing risk. I thought Chris's example was fantastic because instead of a metric like you know number of phishing attempts, um, instead he could look at the reduction in the number of successful test phishing attempts. So that's an effective measurement, not just an operational metric. You know, so there's even things that I like. Um, you could have an OKR, like the number of new products and new projects that have had a security review before production. Set that as an OKR or something that you you track. You know, your goal is let's say 70% or whatever the whatever the number is. But that's an improvement. And just the thought is that if a security team gets a chance to review a, a project early in the design stage, that'll um, inherently reduce risk, reduce trauma, things like that. So it's possible to have um, measurements which are not technical controls. They can be process improvements. Um, the number of documents that um, include a self-data classification scheme, um, the number of times that security a percentage of security is engaged um, at the right place in the at the project life cycle. Those things will all help. They're indicative of a healthy data security, um, data protection program, um, and they're easier to measure than some kind of fantastic risk management CVSS score times the phase of the moon equals risk or something. Are there, are there other signs that may not warrant a specific measurement, but that you might take a step back and look at and say, yeah, we're, we seem to be doing something well here. For example, if you're using compliance as a driver, I'm just making this up on the fly. If you're using compliance as a driver, do you perhaps look at how well, effectively, efficiently you actually adhere to the, the compliance requirements? Do you complete your SOC 2 in 10% less time because you're actually changing your processes and your workflows and the communications and your and ultimately your policies and controls that, to support that? Are there things like that, that that you can take a step back and look at? Oh, so we're a product company. So certifications, um, in my opinion, go a long way to not just forcing you to improve, but as a third-party recognition that you are doing the right things. Um, there are different certifications in IoT space that are important. Um, and my belief anyway, that if you, it's a way to prove to your customers that those things are important. Um, it's also a way to improve to your internal customers that you follow industry best practices. And Chris, maybe, because we're talking customers here and in Andy's perspective, that's that's a consumer of a device uh, most likely, um, in your case, it's it's a faculty member, a professor, a student, a visitor on campus, a 
perhaps a third-party service mm -hmm. provider uh, working with, with the organization. How do you kind of wrangle all of those views as part of this as well? Yeah, it's it's one of the, the biggest challenges I think I face in my position currently, um, but it, at the same time, it comes with so much interest and so many interesting things that, that we get to deal with and experience. Um, the organization, you know, has it's a credit union, bookstores, payment process, hospital. It's, it's really its own little village. Um, and so all of these different units and departments, they all might require separate specific certifications. Maybe it's DFARS for one with specific mm -hmm. government research or PCI in another area. Um, HIPAA, you know, so from our perspective as a, a single organization trying to provide a service of, of information security, trying to come up with something that's going to get all of these units to a, at least to a point. It may not be to the full point that they need. Um, you know, we can't complete DFARS for every everybody, get it up to that highest level. Um, it just wouldn't be practical or needed even. Um, so how far do we need to take kind of everyone as a as a whole um, and then work with them individually to get them to where they need to be? And Andy, your view on, on third party, uh, the, the third party uh, risk perspective here, Ed, maybe we tap into some of your healthcare, <laughs> healthcare experience and uh, certainly devices play a key role here as well. So I don't, I don't sure. know any thoughts on that. Um, in health data, HIPAA and the penalties are pretty clear. Um, a thing that will help, but again, that's pretty clear. So compliance as the, as the financial hammer. Um, just one story, when I worked at the security metrics pen test company, uh, we did some work with a large hospital chain and we found out that the researchers uh, that would do analysis on industry trends would have PHI in their laptops. They said, oh no, this isn't patient data, this is training data. Um, it's research data, but of course it was PHI. So it's kind of, um, I don't know, either funny or horrifying to hear how they thought of data versus how, uh, um, let's say a DBA or someone more on the inside would think of it. Um, it's similar with uh, maybe just any Training data, you know, is training data considered sensitive? You know, is it regulated PHI um, or not? Um, even if it's in a dev account, if it contains real people, then it's, and if the real people retain uh, privacy rights, then that's PII, then that's regulated data. So even if it's in a dev system, it still can be high level PII. I think the um, the certifications and uh, the external requirements is the the way to get started, a way to get leverage in um, building reasonable policies, getting people's attention, starting to um, break the inertia and get enforcement to get people to come to you and help collaborate on what is the right way to build a secure, compliant data pipeline, data systems. Um, as soon as you can have compliance support, and let's say that you say no, no PII on laptops. Okay, uh, that's a pretty easy policy for people to understand the spirit of the rule um, as well, well as the letter of the law. 
yeah, that's PII. You can't have it on your on your laptop. So now you um, can help collaborate with ways that they can do their job um, without requiring the the data to be pulled down. You know, maybe we build uh, EC2 instances, virtual instances, or things like that, where they can run it up in a cloud environment, do all their normal stuff, but it doesn't get exposed. Um, and that starts with compliance to help set the policy, and then you can collaborate on how to enforce that policy that's both secure and stakeholder friendly. And I think that kind of goes to the point you made early on, Andy. Um, I believe it was you that said that the line and business owner really needs to take ownership of this. Uh, maybe it was you, Chris. Sorry. <laughs> We've talked a lot here. But I guess my point is, it, to me, it comes back to the, the scenarios that you want to accomplish as a business. And then how do you do that uh, in a way that, that protects the data? And if you're not having those conversations with the business leaders and the compliance leaders and the risk leaders and the security and the IT ops, right? You're, you're going to miss the ball somewhere, uh, miss the mark somewhere. So I guess as we come to a close here, a final thought from each of you and you can take this, uh, I'll give you three choices. Um, <laughs> some, something, cause you've already provided a lot of great tips here, uh, like avoiding uh, low hanging fruit for the sake of low hanging fruit is one, but any, any tips for, teams, uh, security teams and risk teams, policy uh, compliance teams looking to really start or enhance their data protection program, things they should avoid that you've seen uh, not work well, or maybe a, a, if there's a, a silver bullet, <laughs> not for the whole thing, but one, one thing that works well, or perhaps a change we need to make in how we look at data protection for the future that uh, will make it easier. So, Chris, I'll start with you. Sure. So, um, if I was going to try and, you know, think what what is a silver bullet for getting a data protection program off the ground, um, I would specifically not choose any tool, any technical control. Um, I would say the silver bullet needs to be some sort of advisory function um, that goes in to meet with the business unit first understand you know who they are what they're about how much resourcing they have available to you know just in general before you can even start to get to any security type conversation or specific control um, once this advisory function in a you know a security organization understands that then we can start bringing in um, you know the risks that, that that unit might face that they can connect with as non-security people that, you know, they've probably just come across in the news, um, bringing those into the conversation and then level set and say, here's the services that we've we've got at hand for you to, to jump on board with that'll meet some of these risks and, and ultimately ideally help you with your business. Uh, I think that, that would be my silver bullet if, if I had to pick one. That's good. Love it. Andy. Um, I, a couple things. One is um, truly be risk driven. Um, I mean, that word gets misused a lot by technical people that think of technical risk. Um, work with the business, the business owners, the people that can actually give you dollar impact scores for, for some of your scenarios. I think there's ways to start pretty simply and get 
uh, their dollar impact scenarios. Just keep it to um, log, you know, base 10, the number of zeros after one for different scenarios. Um, but get their assessment on what they see as most risky. Um, is it customer trust? Is it uh, availability for some amount of time? Um, you can set up some basic scenarios and work them through um, where you get their opinions on what things are risky. You could do it as a, as a simple ordinal or ideally like a 90% confidence interval or something like that. Um, but get their idea of what the real business risk is. Um, and then that's where you prioritize because that is what is most important to your stakeholders and that's what is most important to your business. And if you truly do that, you're fighting the good fight and you're putting your time and energy into the places that'll have the, the most impact. You'll do the most good. Um, as far as a, a process thing, and maybe this is because I'm an architect, but um, from day zero, begin to establish a common set of terminology period. You know, there's one set of words that we use and here's exactly what these words mean. Um, you'll see in documents, you'll see, I don't know, private, secret, confidential, proprietary. Well, what does that mean? Those are all synonyms. Um, instead, come up with, uh, for our data classification, whatever it is, here's exactly what it means. Um, here's exactly how we define it for different domains. And then all of your policies, um, all of your technical standards, all of your controls, all of your design documents even, can reference those single set of words. Um, the advantage that I found is that by constricting the, uh, the vernaculars, the terms we use, that I can have a conversation with a lawyer or a compliance person using the exact same words that I turn around and have with our most technical of architects of data science. And there's no, um, it's not lossy. You know, we're saying the same words, we know what it means. So again, I think as a process, um, establish the, uh, the terminology early and your communication will go a lot better and smoother. I love it. And uh, Mark, my co-founder, Marco's not here to stop me from asking questions. <laughs> I, have, I, have, I have a gazillion more, but I'm going to hold myself to it. Um, I'm, as soon as you reminded me that you're an architect, I, I just had a gazillion more things that we, <laughs> we could drill down into just based on that. Um, I think the, the main takeaway from me for all of this is it, it's it's never too late, right? I mean, we talked a lot about existing organizations and, and product units or business units, and a lot of stuff exists already. Um, that shouldn't be an excuse to say it's too hard and we're already down a path that's that's sucks. <laughs> we have to take we have to take some responsibility here. I like the idea of I don't like security driven by compliance, but compliance to help analyze risk and perhaps to use it as a way to tell stories, I think is fantastic. The story that can be understood by the business down to ops and down into engineering as well. Um, all critically important. And I mean, I literally could have, have this conversation for another few more hours, but uh, we'll, we'll spare everybody my voice uh, for now. <laughs> and uh, 
perhaps we can have a follow-up conversation. I know we have a lot more to, to cover in redefining cybersecurity here on ITSP Magazine. We're looking at identity and business continuity and all kinds of stuff over the next couple of months. So perhaps uh, one or both of you join for, for some follow-up conversations and Sounds good. Maybe even, maybe even to deep dive into, into something else that uh, the audience likes. And with that, uh, thanks to everybody for joining us today for this conversation. Hopefully uh, you enjoyed it, uh, catch, catching it live. Uh, if you're listening or watching on demand, appreciate you doing that as well. I'll invite Andy and Chris to share any resources they think might be helpful for folks trying to get a handle on this topic. And uh, with that, uh, we'll see you all on the next redefining cybersecurity next week same time on monday to eastern uh, looking at business continuity and disaster recovery so hopefully you can join me for that chris andy thanks a million guys appreciate uh, the great insight and and uh, support for the community to help uh, us protect our data better imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. iTrust is a leading data protection standards development and certification organization that strives to safeguard sensitive information and manage information risk for global organizations across all industries and throughout the third-party supply chain. Learn more at HighTrustAlliance.net. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Security Podcast. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.